Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this instalment of Inside Story, the occasional Irish Times podcast in which we lift the lid on the work of our reporters and what's going on behind the scenes when they're producing the stories that you read in the newspaper and on the website. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today we're looking at a troubling issue that affects victims and our alleged victims in cases of sexual assault and rape. Conor Gallagher has this report. When Joan Tate was 14, she was raped by a man whose children she was babysitting. The guy went down with his wife came back halfway through the night. He kind of appeared in the room. I didn't even hear him come in the front door. And he just said to me, they had two small children at the stage. And he told me that one of the children were crying. And I knew I hadn't heard him crying because the rooms were, you know, the, the walls were like paper. And I got up into the bedroom and he was in after me and he threw me on the floor and raped me. And his aunt came halfway up the stairs and asked if everything was okay. And he put his hand over my mouth and just said... Everything's fine, Lizzie. Joan, from Churchtown in Dublin, didn't tell anyone about her ordeal until 1988, after she gave birth to her daughter, Emma. I had two sons. My two boys were seven and five. But was it when Emma was born, I kind of felt, oh my God, if that happened to her, I'd never cope. She told the councillor that she wanted to report her rape to Gardaí, but she was warned that if she did, she might be questioned about her past sexual history in court. This was too much for Joan. And she said, oh no, she said, I wouldn't advise that at all. She said, because your sexual history would be... Now, at the time, like, I was 14, so I didn't have a boyfriend. I was a virgin. I no, I wouldn't have had a sexual history. It took another three decades for Joan to tell Gardaí. And her abuser, Andrew Riley of Nutgrove Avenue, was jailed for eight years earlier this year for her rape. He was also convicted of sexually abusing her sister Geraldine around the same time period. Giving evidence at the trial, Joan found herself being negatively characterised by the defence barrister's questions. She was trying to paint, obviously, me a picture of, like... Why a 14-year-old, I was like, a good thing, if you like, fun for better what I was saying. Today in Ireland, women alleging sexual abuse are being quizzed about their own past sexual history in a high proportion of cases. In roughly 30% of cases in the last five years, defence teams applied for permission to ask these questions, according to figures obtained by the Irish Times. And previous research indicates that judges grant permission in the vast majority of these cases. If a defence barrister wants to ask about past sexual history, they have to make an application to the judge under a rule called Section 3. The law states that these questions can only be asked if they're relevant to the case. I asked Barrister Mary Rose Geerty what a situation like that might look like. The obvious case in which it's relevant is in which a complainant has said that um, she has no previous sexual history. In other words, that she's a virgin. That's the, the most obvious example of where if there is information that this is not true, if there is a prior sexual history there... That is, uh, that would be obviously a, a way in which to attack her credibility in what I would consider to be, and I think everyone would have to accept, would be an appropriate way if the, if the complainant has made such a claim, which in fact has nothing to do with whether or not, arguably nothing to do with whether or not she consented on this occasion, but certainly if she's made a claim which can be shown to be uh, wholly inaccurate, 
then I think the defence would have to be entitled to present that to the jury. Nolene Blackwell of the Rape Crisis Centre agrees that it's necessary for a barrister to ask these questions when some discrepancy in the witness's evidence exists. After all, the consequences of a guilty verdict based on a victim's testimony are severe. But Nolan says that in some cases, Section 3 has been used in a more worrying way. It is perfectly clear that sometimes this is done in order to affect the woman's credibility. To see, is she being shown as promiscuous? Is she being shown as somebody of low morals who cannot be believed so well? So for us, there is a real worry that the number of times that this is coming up actually means that there is a chilling effect on people giving evidence. Nolan says sometimes victims only find out they're going to be questioned like this when a trial is about to begin. Another problem is that the criteria for Section 3 applications to be granted are vague, more so than in other jurisdictions. It has been really well defined and introduced in much more comprehensive way in the UK. Uh, the evolving view that a vulnerable witness, whether it's a complainant in a sex case or a child or someone with any kind of disability, can be treated very, very differently in court. And they have brought in practice directions in the UK, which we don't yet have here. One would hope that we will bring in something similar here. But those practice directions dictate the length of the cross-examination, the kind of questions that can be asked. It has got to a point in the UK where a trial judge can legitimately ask defence counsel to give the judge a list of defence counsel's questions before the witness gives evidence in order to rule on whether or not they're appropriate. So is it time to change the rules? In 2015, 65% of those who reported sexual violence to the Rape Crisis Centre did not tell a formal authority like the police about what happened to them. Joan thinks that more would come forward if victims could hope for fairer treatment. It doesn't matter if if, if it's a prostitute. It doesn't matter if someone that's... You know, if you say no, if you don't want a man to, to, to have sexual relations with you or sexual contact with you and a woman says no, or a man for that matter, that should be it. It shouldn't, you know, it's what happened to you at that particular time. You know, if you had 26 partners, if you had 106 partners before you were raped, that shouldn't have an into it. And that was Joan Tate there talking to Conor Gallagher. Conor is editor of the court reporting service uh, CCC Newark, which provides a lot of copy to the Irish Times, and he also writes on some of these issues for the Irish Times as well, including on this one. Conor, pretty troubling stuff there. Yeah, they're, they're very troubling. I mean, this is a woman uh, who wanted to, to, to go to Gardaí and to, to tell Gardaí about the abuse in the 80s, in the late 80s. Um, I mean, this this counsellor told her that if she did go to the Gardaí, there's a chance that her entire private life could be could be dredged up before the court, even though she was a 14-year-old and, as she says herself, a virgin at the time of the abuse. So can I just ask you about that point? Because as we heard in, in, in your package there, um, this is at the discretion of the court. So in other words, the, the, the defence uh, needs to prove that there's something in particular which is relevant to this particular case that they are going to question about. It, it On that basis, it seems unlikely to me that somebody who's alleging sexual assault at the age of 14 is going to be questioned about uh, anything to do with their life after that after that date. You're that abs- hardly seems relevant. You're absolutely right. Uh, it, it wouldn't be relevant. And probably if a barrister did try to cross-examine Joan on that today, uh, indeed, in, in the trial that she actually went through last year, it didn't happen. And, and if a barrister had tried to make that application, they most likely would have been denied. Um, but I suppose one of the points that um, Nolene Blackwell would make there and, and Mary 
Rose, is that it could have a chilling effect on victims. I mean, we saw it with Joan that the, even the idea that this could happen, you know, these are the most intensely private things in your life. And to have them uh, aired in a court uh, in front of, you know, 12 strangers, a load of lawyers, a judge, maybe a reporter or two, and first and foremost, uh, your, your alleged attacker. Um, I mean, even the idea of that... Um, I, I think possibly has quite a significant Oh indeed and also on, to have them held up to scrutiny and their veracity questioned in a kind of inquisitorial kind of environment really you, you can see how that would put people off and I mean speaking of chilling effects we know because we've seen statistics from, from agencies that, that, that very few uh, pe- people who are sexually assaulted or raped actually take it, take it through, the, through the full legal consequences so clearly we're seeing chilling effects and this may be a significant contributing factor. It's, it's obviously like impossible to quantify unless you were to do some sort of mass survey um, and, and, and more a lot more research is needed in the area to see what kind of effect it is having. But I mean one of the, the more disturbing aspects of this that I think Noeline Blackwell made, made the point to me when I was talking to her is a lot of the times a, a rapist knows their victim intimately. They've, they're a family member or they are a, a partner or a former partner. Um, so they know they know their history. They know what buttons to push, so they can they can instruct their barristers to why don't you ask them about this sexual predilection that they have, or this how, this how many sexual partners they've had. And as Mary Rose Garrity says in the package, there there are genuine reasons for doing that. There's genuine reasons of fact. Um, there's a case called uh, GK, and in the GK case, the the um, the defence were asked to be allowed ask questions of a previous uh, of, of, of a victim's sexual history, um, but they were allowed to do that for a very specific reason. The victim said she was a virgin. Uh, sorry, the alleged victim, I should say. The alleged victim said she was a virgin, and um, the, the defence were able to show that she had actually had a sexual partner in the past. So that goes to credibility, and I think most um, uh, legal experts would say, you know, that's. It's not great, but that kind of has has to be allowed. But but if you take somebody's like if I were to put myself in this situation, if if you were to take my entire or a large part of the most personal elements of of my entire life history and hold them up to scrutiny, and possibly because as we know this can happen in a court, either through error or through embarrassment or through confusion, um, something is 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 found not to be true, and your credibility as a witness as the as the key witness is is thrown into you know in, in, into question because of that. You can see how, you can see how a, a, I suppose really an effective defence might use that as a as an aggressive tool. Absolutely, but I think even more worrying is when they're not um, uh, going to the the credibility of the of 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 the the witness. They're going to the character of the witness, and that's not allowed. Um, but it does happen. Um, it's not allowed. It's not. It's not allowed. But you might get it, get it across the line by saying you're go- it's going to credibility, but. You're still putting in all this stuff to make them look, you know, promiscuous. To make them look, for want of a better word, easy. And um, I, I've seen it happen in in, in a, a significant number of cases where they've tried to put in. I've seen it happen where they've tried to introduce Facebook pictures of someone, um, a, 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 an alleged victim in an embrace with a man, you know, before the assault or maybe after the, the assault. Um, I've even seen them try to do it in the case with a Down syndrome woman. It was in her thirties. Um, lived with her mother. Uh, she was raped on the streets. You might remember the case it was particularly horrendous. Uh, uh, 
last year, um, early last year, and they tried to introduce her sexual history. Now, she had absolutely no sexual history whatsoever, but the barrister wanted to ask her if she'd ever kissed a boy, if she'd ever held hands with a boy. Um, it was actually a kind of a bizarre application. The judge, judge, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, immediately dismissed it, and, and, he, and I don't think he was too happy about it being made. Obviously, the barrister was acting on, on the client's instructions, but it, it certainly didn't help him making that application. But in other times, I've seen it being granted for various legal reasons. But whatever the intention is, the effect is can be a character assassination. And Ivana Bacic, the senator, has actually done a, 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 a lot of research in this area. And she found in some cases it's um, they can even introduce evidence that a woman is on birth control as kind of evidence of promiscuity, as in... Really? We were prepared for it. Yeah, it she, seems, she found at least one seems, case where that happened. It seems astonishing. I mean, there's been a you know there's been a regular, long-standing criticism of our court system is that is that one set of people who it fails on a regular basis is is victims in terms of victims' rights in courts. And I mean, this might seem to be an example of that. What powers are we heard about? You know, there there are systems which could be put in place which can mitigate against against egregious uh, misuse of this provision because it seems that everybody agrees that some provision of this sort is required in certain cases mm. but for example is it possible for for witnesses to give evidence outside a courtroom if they're if otherwise it means that they're going to be in the same space as somebody who they're accusing of committing terrible crimes against them well there is some progress towards that um, and it is receiving some pushback from other areas um, so for example under under recent legislation uh, child victims and vulnerable victims can either give their evidence through video link or they can actually with child victims they can pre-record their evidence and it can with the agreement of the defence and it can be played to the jury that's with, with very young children but for the most part judges and lawyers still want a victim especially if it's an adult victim in the room um, so like with any witness you can judge a jury can judge their demeanour and, and judge the way they are answering questions um, there is there is some, we are seeing in other jurisdictions, a kind of a trend towards um, looking at maybe pre-recording cross-examinations so it's not live in front of a jury, that sort of thing. And in, in England, as Mary Rose, there there is tighter controls on, on, on this Section 3 type of application. Um, it's a lot harder to get across the line and the judge, the barristers often have to basically submit the questions uh, be ahead of time to the judge before they're allowed to do it. Now, I should make the point that a, a, a lot of uh, uh, complainants will consent to allow to being cross-examined and they won't have a problem with it just because they're like, I've nothing to be ashamed of, this is fine. And I'm not sure how much sway it has over juries. Obviously, you know, maybe in the 80s, uh, in the 90s, it was different, more traditional kind of country. But nowadays, uh, obviously, this is impossible to kind of quantify. Uh, but I'm not sure how much sway that kind of thing. Although there is a subtext under this, isn't it, which we have to be aware of. There is a, a historical subtext. I'm not even sure if it's entirely historical with, you know, blaming the victim, in the, in, particularly in regard to this particular type of crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the optics alone are, 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 are awful and, you know... As, as as we said, you know, there is a place for this this type of cross examination, but the the idea that you could use the show promiscuity, even if that's not succeeding, the idea that you're allowed to do it, you're still putting that complainant through that fairly nasty process, and it can be a brutal process. Process now, lots of barristers can handle it very delicately and responsibly. Some don't, um, and I, like you know, that's a matter of interpretation, I suppose. But yeah, whether it's influencing juries or not is not really the point. It's 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 about what the victim is going through. 
And that's it for this edition of Inside Story. Thanks to Conor Gallagher for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan or drop me an email at hlinehan at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.